Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hey, David. Um, yeah, I, I'd love to leave you a message, but uh, I know it's been a while since grade school. Uh, there's these things called time zones. Um, just because the sun's up where you are doesn't mean that it's up here. I'd appreciate it if maybe you didn't call at 4 o'clock in the morning, but uh, I'll just I'll just leave a message you can use, okay? Um everybody, this is Jeremiah in Phoenix. Uh, I can't wait for you to hear this wonderful, amazing message from my good friend David to the to the Westchester, Westchester, Westchester. Hey everybody, this is Jeremiah in Phoenix. I can't wait to hear this message. Let's dig in. In 1804, Alexander Hamilton was in a very tight election with with a very lifelong foe of his named Aaron Burr. And these guys were such embittered rivals that ultimately when Alexander Hamilton won this election, Aaron Burr began publicly accusing Alexander Hamilton of slandering him so that he would lose the election. And so the way that this dispute had been handled in those early days in the early 1800s was you would then have a duel in the streets. And so the way that Alexander Hamilton responds to these accusations is these, these guys start, start whipping out guns and saying, okay, let's settle this in the streets right now. And then when everything had been all said and done, Aaron Burr shot down, gunned down one of our founding forefathers of this country like a dog in the streets. A man whose, whose face would one day be on American currency gunned him down like a dog in the streets. And as the story goes, Alexander Hamilton died in the exact spot just about where his oldest son had also been gunned down in a duel just a few years before this time. Just two years later, in the year 1806, Andrew Jackson is accused of squelching on a horse bed. And the guy also insults his wife. So Andrew Jackson whips out a gun and he shoots the guy dead in the streets. And that's because this was a time in our history where if you have an opponent and they come after you, you strike back in the form of bullets. Or if you had, had watched the news a couple days, days back, we don't exactly have gun duels in the streets anymore, but we, we do have what are called a Twitter feud. And just last week, we, we had this, this exchange here, Bette Midler going after Donald Trump. She insults him, saying that he deserves to be held upside down and his hair cut off and strapped to the roof of the car. Trump responds insulting her, saying that, um, mentioning how she has an ugly face and an ugly body, writing again, calling her a washed-up psycho, and then saying that she's an extremely unattractive woman. I mean, listen, I don't care if you voted for this guy, if you did not vote for this guy, if you like him, if you don't like him, much love to us one and all. But this just strikes me as one of those situations where it looks like everybody was in the wrong. Because we're living in this age where if you insult me, I'm going to insult you three times worse. And it just keeps escalating and it keeps on escalating. 
And yet in the first century, though, as Jesus walked those streets in ancient Palestine, this was a time in which if you had any kind of a legal dispute, what was in form in that time was something called eye for eye and a tooth for tooth. And the law of Moses really captures just, just how severe this was, that you shall sh not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. If there's a person who would kill the son of your say, you could legally go after something that they had. If they were to attack you in the street for some reason, and they were to something like gouge an eye out, you could legally go after their eye as well. And you can make them weep just as hard as they had made you weep. This was a time in which if a person ever harmed you for any reason, you could then make, make them hurt in the exact same way that they have just hurt you. And yet as we return to the Sermon on the Mount this week, chapter 5 and verse 38, Jesus is standing up on the plain and he's looking out at all these people and what is going through his mind, I believe, is that there has got to be a better way for us to, to really strike back in the Christian age to come. And so in our text in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38, here's what Jesus says about conflict. He says that you've heard, it, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And, and yet then here comes his transforming initiative that, that is going to, to completely change everything. Where Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to, to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow something that belongs to you. And, I mean, we have read this for, for our entire lives, I imagine. We can quote a lot of these passages. And yet the only problem is, we struggle with this teaching of Jesus. If we are completely candid in this trigger-happy culture that we're living in, in this culture of retribution that, that, that gets so excited anytime a person is wrong this, because after all, as the old expression goes in our country, I do not get mad, I get, I get even. That revenge is a meal that is best served as cold as possible. And in so many ways, what, what I just read from, from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, this is the, our American version of what we find in John chapter 6, is Jesus says that, that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in me. And and just like they had responded about that, we respond towards, towards this, what Jesus has just said here. That, Lord, this is a hard saying. I mean, who can even accept this? So, Jesus, what you're saying is that if there's a person who wants to bring harm to me, that I can't defend myself, 
that I just have to just lie down and let this person keep hurting me over and over and over and over again? That, I mean, if anybody wants to borrow anything from me, that anybody and everybody who asks for a handout, I just have to give them all my money, the keys to my house, the keys to my car, and just go and be a homeless person for the rest of my life? I mean, has God lost his marbles here? Turn the other cheek? Go the extra mile? Give to anybody who asks anything? I mean, it just seems so unrealistic in the 21st century American mind. And yet, mainly what we find is a giant misunderstanding of what Jesus actually means when he says all of this. Really, in order for for us to understand exactly what Jesus means here, we need to understand first that, that Jesus is not speaking about crimes committed against us. Jesus is not speaking about if there's a person who's trying to um, kill us or, or a person who's in our family. He's not speaking about the kind of person who would abuse a child in a family or something like that. He's, he's not referring to a person who wants to break into our house and to harm our, our, our spouse or our kids in some way. Jesus is not speaking about bullets in our lives, but maybe it would help us to understand that it would be something like getting stung by a wasp where a person comes into our life and does the equivalent of stinging us as a wasp would. Now, is it going to hurt? I mean, it's going to absolutely sting, and it's annoying, and it hurts. But is it life-threatening, unless you have an allergy of some kind? I mean, it's not going to be a lethal sting. It's just going to be something that is going to hurt, but eventually it's going to go away. Now, this is also not Jesus giving a policy for how a country should be run. I mean, how, how absurd would it have been on 9-11 if our government and army had said, okay, you just brought our World Trade Centers down, and so let's all go to the Statue of Liberty and to the White House and hold hands as we allow you to explode all of our national land, you know, landmarks. I mean, that would have been absurd. That is not at all what Jesus is speaking about but rather, what Jesus is referring to here is a certain kind of person who has a certain kind of attitude that has been implanted in their minds throughout time. And I'm just curious, how many people here, how many of you have ever been approached by a person in the streets and slapped across the face in broad daylight? Has that happened to, to anyone here? And yet, show of hands, how many of you have ever been insulted by another person? How many of you have ever been slighted in a public sense by another person? How many of you have ever been a target of another person who is trying to bring you down a notch and to elevate they themselves up? In so many ways, I believe what Jesus is referring to here is to a verbal slap in the face, is to a punch to our reputation in the eyes of many other onlookers. This, in so many ways, is that acquaintance in our lives or that distant relative who we do not want to be around at family gatherings. And now, now I'm really getting real here. It might even be a person in a church who, for just whatever reason, has never liked you. And it just seems like every word that they have to say about us is just critical. 
and it just looks like they are trying to bring you down a few notches. Maybe it's a coworker, whatever it is. We, we know exactly who this person is when we're around them because when we come into, you know, anywhere near them, our, our blood pressure begins skyrocketing. And we do not want to be around this person because we know that they're going to start making barbed statements, backhanded compliments, trying to let everybody know how worthless we are as people for one reason or another. And I mean, just let me say that this is not easy. In fact, what Jesus says in our text this morning could very well be the hardest thing for us to actually live out in our lives. When we're in situations like this, we will know it because we will be so enraged that we will want to, to you know, just punch this person's head off of their shoulders. And we will be that close to actually striking out in anger towards this person. We're going to know when we're in these situations. And yet, this will also help us to really understand what Jesus is saying. Because a lot of time, times what gets lost in translation to our American eyes is that when Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, that word resist is a military word specifically reserved for, for war and for combat. What Jesus is saying, in other words, is do not oppose a malicious person. Do not go to, to war with a person who is maliciously signaling or has singled you out. Do not return fire once they have struck first blood. That word evil simply means somebody who is doing very malicious things to you um, in some way, shape, or form. And yet, I love what Jesus says, though. Because when I looked very closely at just what exactly Jesus is saying to us in these three examples that he specifically cites is that actually when we see this through the eyes of first century Jews, and when we see this in the full vibrant color that it was intended to be understood in, what Jesus is saying actually is not so much of a pipe dream, but this is actually unspeakably revolutionary and brilliant in terms of how Christians strike back in response to our conflict. And yet, notice in the text, though, that at no point is there any justification for you or I to, to ever lash out in anger or in fury towards that person. There is no room for, for, for us to ever seek our own revenge or to get even in any way. But rather, what we see is while the nations around us war against each other, and while the unbelieving world lusts after vengeance towards one another, Jesus is saying, here is how Christians are to strike back. And if we look very closely at these three examples, there, are, there is a pattern that we see in all three of them. And these three things are, number one, you've got to withstand the blow. Again, it's not a crime. It is really like, like a wafting. But it begins as we withstand the blow. But then secondly, once we have withstood a blow, Respond with God's grace in a way that will completely and utterly catch that person off guard. And then the coolest thing of all is once, if we have done that really in the full measure, many times this is going to reveal their motives and make them question why they are treating us in this way. 
And so I just want to jump right into it. Jesus starts and he says that whoever slaps you on the right cheek. And so what we need to understand about this is that this is a left-handed slap that Jesus is speaking about. Now, in the first century Palestine, you only use your left hand for the most unclean things. And I'll just let you use your imagination what you would use the left hand for on a daily basis, okay? Yeah, that's what Jews used that left hand for. But most importantly, though, most significantly to this, though, is that when you slapped a person with a left hand, this was a blow of a superior. This is what a father might give to a son who is getting a little too mouthy with him. But, but really, most of all, to the point... This is what a slave master used for his slave. Because what this had communicated to everybody around them is that this, this person is absolutely worthless. Anytime you would get, get slapped in the face with a left backhanded slap like this, the blow of a superior, this was a very dehumanizing measure to, to you and to everybody else. And yet here, here though is where you completely catch them off guard. Jesus says, you have just been struck on the right cheek. And so now what you need to do is also give him your left cheek. And the reason why this is so significant is because where this person is standing who has just slapped you across your face, if he's going to actually to, to, um, strike you on the left cheek, he's got to turn awkwardly all the way around, come over here, and slap you with his right hand. Here's where he could very well question what his motives are. Because unlike this left hand, what this right hand communicates is, I'm not your master. I'm not you know, a father to you. But actually we are equals. That this person is my neighbor. That this person is my brother. And so anybody who would ever actually do this literally, that other person would have stopped and think, well, if I slap him again, then... I'm saying that he's my equal and that I am claiming him as my own brother in the flesh. And so why would I strike a brother in the flesh like that? I mean, can you see just, just, just how brilliant this is in response? I mean, sneaky. Really, in a lot of ways, it's almost like, like a prank that we pull on the world. It makes them question what their motives are. And, you know, it's been my experience that anytime I've, I've had an antagonist in this way who has verbally slapped me across the face in this way, that person was looking, trying to get me very, very angry so that I would, would you know, lash out against them and to strike back in complete violence. And yet this is really significant, though, because... I, I just love what King Solomon says about this. Where he says that, that fools show their annoyance at once. But notice how he says, but the prudent can overlook an insult. It's almost like we can have a poker face for swallowing insults. Now, is it going to hurt us? Is it going to sting? Is it going to make us slightly mad? Of course it will. We're human beings after all. But there is an art to overlooking offenses and to not showing our annoyance out of loving, long-suffering for that person. 
And then he also goes on and he says that deceit is in the hearts of those who plot evil. In other words, in this instance, how can I strike back at this person? How can I give them revenge that is so cold that their ancestors will remember it? God's word says that that is evil. That deceit is in the hearts of those who plot evil. But then notice how he says, but those who promote peace have joy. And in the few times that I've successfully managed to actually put this into living practice, I can tell you, I mean, for, I mean, beyond doubt, that as angry as I felt as I withstood that blow, when I swallowed all of that anger, and I just let God deal with that insult, and instead I gave them God's grace, and they experienced God's grace, that was really one of the greatest feelings in the world. And it just breeds a very strange and a foreign peace inside of you that that this person is no longer in control of me right now, but God and his kingdom now are in control of the situation. So cool. You get slapped in the face and our response is, is that all you've got? Here, hit me again. Hit me harder than you just hit me. Everyone's like, what? This is not normal human behavior, is it? This is responding with the grace of God and then some, and then some. Well, next Jesus says that if somebody has something against you and they want to, and they're considering taking you into court, you've got a tunic and they want to maybe go after a tunic of yours. And really what we need to understand about this is that, it, is that in the ancient world, you would have two primary articles of clothing besides um, a belt here. You would have a tunic, which is right here, which is more of an outward garment, kind of like, like a t-shirt kind of or I'm a dress shirt. Then on the outside, you would have the most valuable article, which is a coat. And so Jesus says there's a person who wants to go after a tunic. And by the way, many Jewish peasants, this was the only thing that they had owned, just one tunic and one coat. Here's where we completely catch them off guard, though. I have wronged you, and I'm sorry about that. And in fact, I feel so sorry about that, that I'm going to not only give you my one and only tunic, but I'm also going to also let you have my very coat. What is interesting about this is that in ancient Palestine, your coat would also double as a blanket at night. And so in this circumstance, you are not only giving them a tunic and a coat, but, but you're also giving them cover so that they can stay, stay warm at night. This, I believe, is what the Apostle Paul is speaking about. As he says, never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. Because it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But then notice, he says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will keep burning coals upon his head. And for the longest time, that very last verse, what I, what I read in my American eyes is, oh, so you're just going to kill him in kindness then. Joke's on him, right? And yet it sounds very strange and outlandish to our ears, but, but if you lived way back in the first century, when it was very cold at night in the wintertime, you would have something akin to a bowl of sorts, a very heavy steel bowl. And you would have literal coals that would be burning in the night. 
And this was how your entire body would be kept warm. And so really what the idea here is, is that, is that if there's a person who is an enemy towards you, be generous towards them. Practice kindness towards them. And when you act kindly towards them, God's grace will keep them warm. Even if it feels as if you must be cold and going without, what is important is that God's grace is experienced by this other person. And yet here's where they get revealed, though, because if they have taken not just a tunic of yours, but also a coat, you are walking around not just with, not your coat, which in this culture would have been extremely unusual, but, and I'm not going to get, you know, naked before you all, but, but I'll just let you use your imagination. If there's a person walking around with, with nothing on but just a sandal and a belt, this is what Jesus is talking about. Everybody's going to look at this other guy and say, this guy fleeced this you know, poor peasant. When all he did was just this minor offense, why is he taking everything that belongs to this guy? I mean, what's wrong with him, in other words? And perhaps that would make him question him going after a tunic of yours in the first place. So what we see again is responding with unexpected generosity and then some. I like that phrase, and then some. And then lastly, Jesus says that whoever forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And so as we all know, this was in the first century, occupied under Rome. And all day long in those streets of Palestine, you would find very large, enormous, very, very strong Roman soldiers walking up and down the streets. These guys were absolute experts at, at building and at construction. And so all day long, you would see them walking up and down roads, but they were legally within their rights under Rome law. At any point, if they saw a Jewish man walking anywhere, they could pull them aside. And they can make them carry all of their heavy building equipment on their shoulders for one full mile. For one full mile. And so if you're a Jew living in this time, you see a Roman soldier and he is a picture of what you despise. This is your despised, embittered enemy. He is the reason why you are as poor as you are because you are being taxed through your nose. And then some... And yet, there is a day in which, I mean, you're on your way to work, perhaps. You have a three-year-old son who is sick, and you're on your way to a doctor so that you can get medicine or something. Or maybe you've been working all day long. You have worked a 13-hour shift, and you are exhausted. And just before you turn the block and get to your house, what do you see? Big, towering, lumbering Roman soldiers saying, You! Walk one mile with me over here, and you, there's nothing you can do about it. You have to drop everything that you're doing. And by the way, in the summertime in Jerusalem, it gets very hot. So it's about 103 degrees. You are just dripping sweat. You, you are wearing a coat on your body. You have something that is backbreakingly heavy on your back, and you've got to walk all the way from where we're sitting, all the way to the Applebee's on Westchester Pike. I have made that walk before. And even without a pack, that is quite a walk. And I mean, th 
this is just so infuriatingly annoying. I mean, it's so. I mean, we think jury duty is bad. This this was nothing compared to jury duty. And yet, the attitude of the Jew was in these moments that if you're going to make me walk one mile, and then by the way, one one mile all the way back after that. Once I reach that one mile mark, I'm not going one more step. I'm going to do the bare minimum. And then you would drop it on his foot, you know. Yet now, what is Jesus saying? Here is how we will catch this world completely off guard. What does he say? That if somebody forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. No more is it going to be I'm just going to do the minimum for my enemy. But from now on, it's going to be the graceful maximum outpouring for other people. I mean, this is how Jesus says we are to respond to this kind of conflict. This is how we are to strike back. This is how we are to to look and to have an attitude in our minds about this. Jesus is saying that, that if you want to be happy, Go one extra mile with this soldier. And so this Roman soldier is smirking because he's expecting you to just be cursing and mumbling under your breath and and mad at the whole world. But you get to the one mile mark and it's not, you know, the bare minimum. It's not one more step. It's let's keep going. I, I was just so happy and so privileged to carry this on my back for one mile. I, you know, I want to do another mile. And the attitude of the heart is, we're just getting started here. Sir, how are you doing? How are your wife and kids doing? I, I love Jesus so much that I just love helping other people. And, and I'm so glad to have this opportunity to help you out. It, it is an honor and a privilege. And yet here is where he gets revealed, though. Because even Roman soldiers had limits. Roman soldiers legally could only go one mile with a Jewish man. But now if you say, let's keep going, and you start actually walking, now that Roman soldier can get reprimanded by his superior officer. It's like you're not supposed to let them go more than one mile. Why are you treating this this, poor Hebrew in this way? I mean, it's genius. It's absolutely brilliant how Jesus says to respond to this. And now of all people, this seemingly insignificant Jewish peasant now has the upper hand over this enormous, strong Roman soldier. And yet it's not just when we have conflict, is it? But any work that we are to do, Scripture says there in Colossians chapter 3, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord and not for man. I used to hate going to work, you guys. And really the first job where, where I learned how to really work in this way was I was loading and unloading trailers at, at FedEx ground. Three o'clock in the morning until noon. Never got one single break in two years of working there, but, but I started off hating that job. You know, you have to load it a certain way. You have to check all the boxes. You got to do all of these things. It's plate spinning. And a lot of my, my walls always collapsed inside the truck. I hated that job. Until I started going to every day of work with Colossians 3.23. That no longer am I working for even my, my own supervisors. 
or for my coworkers. I'm, I, you know, I'm coming in here working for Jesus Christ. And within just maybe five or six months, I was the employee of the month in the entire hub. I mean, three or 400 workers. And it was not because I was strong, because to this day, I still have spaghetti noodles as arms. It wasn't because I was anything great. It was simply because the joy of Jesus Christ got into my heart. And I was enjoying every single moment of those shifts. I was in that trailer eight hours, just drenched in sweat, but it felt like 20 minutes to me. This is the attitude God wants us all to go to work with even. But getting back to our conflict though, what we see in this case too is that rather than responding and giving that person hell, we are unleashing, we are, are um, giving them God's grace and we're bringing heaven down to earth. And then some. And I know that a lot of us have always looked at conflict as, well, you can only respond in two ways, fight or flight. That either I'm going to, to, to strike back and to knock this person dead, or I'm just going to lie down as his doormat and just, well, take it. But what Jesus is saying, though, is that it's actually neither fight nor flight. But that actually conflict is a very creative opportunity to, to show an unbelieving world what God's grace. And you know what I mean as I say grace. Something so undeserved that comes to us that we know that we never had deserved. And it's going to reveal what their motives are. So as we, we close this morning, Paul, he eventually goes on and he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with that which is good. So as we look at our conflict moving forward, our lives are going to change so much in the way that we respond to conflict. If we can just slow, you know, mentally slow down for, for a few seconds in process, no longer is this evil for evil eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But now God wants us to actually overcome evil with that which is good. To overcome hatred with love. To overcome anger by the joy of Jesus Christ in us. When we find ourselves around all of these people who know how to push our buttons, before we strike back eye for eye, tooth for tooth, evil for evil, Mentally ask ourselves, what creative way can I show this person God's grace? If you have a person in your life who is treating you like absolute garbage, who is chipping away at your self-esteem or, or is trying to destroy your reputation, give that person a card from completely out of nowhere and just say, I hope you're having a good day. And I hope that we can get to know each other better and then out of completely nowhere, blindside them, maybe with, with them a gift card to a steakhouse, to the grocery store. Something that they would never expect from a person who they've been antagonizing. Something very creative. It doesn't have to be that, but just something, some unexpected way to say, I love you anyway. And God's grace is the most beautiful thing in the world. And by the way, here's what it looks like. We serve a Lord who goes the next mile for us. And dying on a cross for a world who hated him.
He goes the next mile and then some as he forgives us. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. A God who goes the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth mile and giving us mercy and grace. And now on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, and now go and do likewise. Respond with the grace of God. And then some. And then some.